0: Welcome to your sanity safe space with your favorite YouTube podcast duo or at least one of them it kind of depends and probably some rando too but no complaining because this is free free this is beauty and the beta bonus audio content Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. We are here with the blonde in the belly of the beast. Uh, She lives deep in the heart of liberal territory and is sending up a few flares of non-leftist thought, which are excellent, finely crafted, well-presented. We're going to call her Rebecca. I do believe that is, in fact, her real name, but we'll find out in the comments. You can check her out at youtube.com forward slash blonde in the belly of the beast. Yes, that's right. That's blonde with an E. You can follow her excellent Twitter feed at Twitter dot com forward slash blondes underbar tweets b l b l o n d e s underbar tweets Uh, Rebecca thank you so much for taking the time today
1: thank you so much for having me
0: so what's the story what's the backstory if you were like a superhero what would we need to know uh, if we we cast you in that role what was the backstory of your transition from uh, wherever you started to to wherever you are now
1: Well, I wouldn't say I was ever really far on the left. I never self-identified as a feminist, but um, I did go to Mizzou, University of Missouri, which you've seen what's happened there the last few years. Um, I graduated a few years ago, and I think it's gotten much worse over the last two or three years. And so I didn't have the same kind of indoctrination that it seems um, that they're having right now, or especially last year. Um, so I I did get indoctrinated at Mizzou to some degree. And then after I worked on Wall Street for a few years, it was um, very unsuccessful. I was really unhappy. And around 23, I was like, this is not the path to happiness. I could see an older generation of women um, on Wall Street that were childless or that were just totally overwhelmed working mothers. And I was like, nope, I'm not doing this. And so I decided to like Restructure my life try to relearn behaviors because I was more of a feminist than I was willing to admit. I never would have um, called myself a feminist but you know I was working a a high pressure job in a male dominated field. Um, So I I pretty much was and so I just decided like I have to move. I have to change my lifestyle. I need to relearn behaviors. I need to treat relationships differently Um, in my early 20s. So I'm glad that I. That I decided that then, um, and since then, it's just been a lot of a lot of your channel, Stefan, a lot of Black Pigeon speaks, a lot of relearning behaviors, finding out the truth, um, restructuring my worldview, and and trying to live right.
0: It's funny too because I mean I worked not on Wall Street, but I guess on a somewhat Canadian equivalent, and seeing the people down the road like 10 or 15 years it's pretty important like I mean I grew up in a single mom household as you know so I didn't have a lot of here's the way you achieve happiness in relationships or stability financially or whatever so when I got into the working world I looked at the people around me particularly the older people and I'm like okay does, does that look like a particular place to land the old helicopter of youth and a lot of times it was like no flaming volcano wreckage of doom people were either um Single, generally unhealthy. You know, sitting in, in at desks all day is is pretty rough for the old constitution, uh, and and increasingly bitter and desperate. Or they were facing this tsunami of obligation that comes from having a career plus kids. Because the reason why you have a career if you have kids is because your career is really stimulating, really enjoyable. I mean, nobody sits there and says, "Wow, I could do eight hours of phone customer service." Boy, that's worth giving <laughs> up time with my kids. So generally it was the women in particular who had these glorious, exciting careers, but those careers are very demanding. And so it was like, okay, so the more enjoyable your career, if you have kids, the less enjoyable everything becomes.
1: And I saw all these women that were just, they were overtaxed. And it made me realize, um, I, I, throughout the several jobs that I've had, I can't think of a single woman who was balancing work and and their children appropriately. Like, and, and it made me realize this is impossible. This is an impossible feat. If I'm successful in this field, the end goal here is that I'm just not going to have a relationship with my children. I'm going to be working 80-hour weeks. And so when I realized that it wasn't feasible, I knew I was going to have to work from home if I wanted to work. Um, and that, that is one of the reasons that I started the channel. <clears throat> that and my anger.
0: <laughs> right, right. Uh, Which is a very healthy emotion in my book. Now, were you, because there's a huge amount of, like, anti-kid propaganda uh, in society, particularly, I think, at at Whites, were you somebody who, from the get-go, was interested in being a sort of wife and mom? Was that something that came along later in your life?
1: Um, I always knew that I wanted to have kids. um I'm twenty nine now and I'm, I've gotten to this a little later than I wanted to um because of life circumstances and everything. So I wasn't somebody that was like, I'm never having children, and then I changed my mind. I knew I knew I wanted to have kids, but I also knew that I wanted to have a strong relationship with my kids, that I wanted to stay at home, um that I wanted to be the primary caretaker. And uh, so it just seems an impossible task when you're working that much. Even if you're working forty hours a week, i'm not I'm not really sure how you can do that unless you're working from home and you don't have a very taxing job.
0: Right, right. And so if you want to uh, have kids, of course, then the challenge is you need to sort of plan, plan ahead. And then you, I think you're going to end up looking for a different kind of man than if you just want that sort of postmodern robotic, robotic, no kids purely egalitarian partnership, mm-hmm. because, you know, right. th- things change enormously. When you you have kids, someone's going to end up uh, turning themselves inside out to feed <laughs> them uh, and and not getting much sleep. And there just is that natural uh, division of labor that happens with kids. Right. And so I think then recognizing the vulnerability and dependence that you're going to have as a woman uh, who has kids, I think that really fundamentally changes what you look for. And I know you've done a lot of shows on dating and, and relationships. Do you think that sort of desire to, to have kids to be dependent on a man, to be there to provide, to be the sort of rock wall that protects you and the children, particularly their early years, I gotta think that's had a big effect on your dating choices and your frustration with some of the more liberal men.
1: Uh, that's definitely true. I mean, I've been in a traditional um, relationship with a conservative man for a while, and that's just been vastly different than the dating experiences that I had before I started my channel. Um, And that's another reason that I started my channel because I was meeting all these men and I'm like, you know, this is the most conservative man that I could find. I was on Match.com and I was uh, searching based on political criteria and things like that. Um, But I couldn't find a relationship dynamic that would work because they were so overwhelmed by my conservatism. And this was before I even realized that I was that conservative. Um, so it just seemed like an impossibility. My family's like, you know, you can date a liberal guy. And I'm like, I just don't think I just don't think that I can. Um, so it did change the way the way that I dated who I dated um, and who I ultimately chose.
0: That's yeah, true. You can date a tall liberal guy like you can date a tall short person. I mean, if, if the terms are innately <laughs> self-contradictory, you're going to have a little bit of uh, of a challenge. And, uh, you know, it's funny because, I mean, the genders are different because of reproduction, because of, you know, how we go about making uh, new bipeds on the planet. And uh, this is something to be celebrated. You know, this is when I was a kid, you know, the vive la différence sort of thing, the idea that, that men or women are not identical and we're not like two pods, uh, two pod people. And and that we are different and we should celebrate those differences really seems to have gone kind of haywire lately, where every difference is considered an inequality that results from injustice, every conceivable difference. And it's like, that's really frustrating, because what's wrong with difference that's celebrated?
1: Right. And it's really manifested itself in dating, like, like, the way people date. I was getting a lot of mixed signals. Like, I went out with one person who was like, you were just far too independent for me. And I was like, all right. And then I went out with another person who was like, I would never date a woman that didn't make as much money as I do, or more money. And he was an executive at Nordstrom. He was making six figures. And I, I was just like, I just do not understand. <laughs> I just didn't understand what men wanted, um, what people were looking for, what the dating culture was like until I moved to Seattle.
0: And this is one of the things that I find so frustrating about sort of modern male-female relationships, and makes me glad to be happily married for so long, is that there seems to be such an elemental amount of confusion out there in the dating world? And I know in your shows, you get a lot of questions around this. What's it like? I mean, I know you're in a more steady relationship now, but when you were dating, how many cross signals, how much confusion is there out there in the dating market these days?
1: Um, I would say that pretty much nobody knows what they're doing because um men have kind of been trained to not want what they truly want in a woman which is you know that they're demure and they're sweet and they're they're feminine um and so getting getting those mixed signals from men saying, like, you need to make as much money as I am, or I won't even consider you as a dating prospect, I was like, this is just not, this is not what I expected. And so that made me realize, you know, men are very confused, too, because they've been raised by feminist mothers. They don't seem to know what they want. And women don't seem to know what they want either, because once they get it, once they achieve this higher career success, um, they're bitterly unhappy. And so I think that it really creates this huge element of confusion that all of us have a hard time wading through, Um, But I did see some very encouraging divorce statistics for millennials the other day. I read that most millennials will actually not end up getting divorced. And I've heard for years and years that, um, you know, 50 couples will end up getting divorced. And so I think that's generationals worse than baby boomers. So I read that and I was a little reassured. I'm like, maybe we'll figure it out. (laughs) But I'm not too sure. I'm not super confident.
0: Yeah, there is this, and I remember this when I was younger too, uh, there's all of this, I think it's propaganda about what women want, and you try to be sort of the nice guy, the considerate guy, the, the um, altruistic guy, the let's, sure, let's talk about feelings some more kind of guy. But then what happens is you see the women drift towards these kind of callous, cold hearted, stubbly, <laughs> whatever kind of guys, and you get friend zoned repeatedly, and that I think is really, really frustrating for uh, a lot of men that that there's this mismatch yeah. between what it's almost like this giant test you know let's see if we can get guys to believe this is what women <laughs> want despite all of the empirical evidence to the contrary
1: well it's unfair i mean it, it's very unfair because they've been taught uh, a complete lie which is that um they, they want something different and and if parents would have been honest if they weren't raised by a generation of feminists i think that men would be men and women would be better equipped to deal with relationship and marriages
0: Right, right. And also, I think, with this idea of egalitarianism between the genders, and again, I have no problem. If people don't want to have kids, I think it's a huge mistake in general, but if people don't want to have kids, yeah, men and women, outside of just general physical strength and, and a few things at the top level of IQ, men and women can be perfectly equal. It's children who are the great divider, and it's almost like the leftists are willing to sacrifice birth rates they're willing to sacrifice the very existence of the children whose taxes they need to support the social programs they're promising to everyone it's like they're willing to erase the reproduction of the west in order to maintain this dream this this fantasy of pure egalitarianism because it's it's so much easier to sustain until the government sorry until until kids come into the mix and then you need giant government programs to even keep the pretense of egalitarianism going
1: Isn't it amazing that people have been able to kind of squelch this survival instinct, our most basic instinct, just so they can appear kind to others? It blows my mind. And that's why, you know, I I oscillate between hope, between being hopeful and being pessimistic. But um, I don't know, I think that your average person uh, wants that, needs that to be happy. And so maybe there's more hope than I'm that I'm letting on.
0: Well, kids, kids. Sort of. There's something I read from Jung many, many years ago, where he was saying that sort of the first half of your life is striving and and trying to make your mark and achieve your goals, uh, either you know in terms of your career or education or your impact on the world. It's sort of like climbing this mountain, like the, you're grinding your way up, pulling yourself up by your teeth and molars and all that. And then you get to the top of the mountain. And you're like, okay, I'm here. And this is sort of middle age. And this is sort of the midlife crisis that a lot of people face. And then what happens? He says, okay, the second half of your life, you just can't keep doing that forever. I mean, you you can't. I mean, you just run out of energy and so on. But the second half of your life is more around enjoying the fruits of your labors and reaping the rewards of what you've sown and all that. I remember seeing that because when I was growing up, most of the people that I knew, with very few, very few exceptions, so it's kind of redundant, but most of the people I knew, they had worked enormously hard in the first half of their life. And the second half of their life, which is kind of invisible from your 20s in a way, you know, there's that immortality and you need to be, ah, I'm gonna live forever. The second half of your life needs a huge amount of preparation. And it's re- particularly for women in fertility, you can't rewind.
1: That's definitely true. And so we see um, millennials getting older and they're becoming increasingly embittered because they haven't built that uh, financial security for themselves in the middle of their lives. And so they become increasingly government dependent. Um, And I'm worried for my generation because we don't seem to have the basic skill set to make relationships work, to be successful in careers. And so what are we gonna be like when we're older? I mean, we will be a government dependent generation again.
0: Right, right. Because that as well, there used to be, as you know, uh, Rebecca, there used to be this old thing where, you had kids and you loved your kids and they loved you back. And then when you got old, you had security, you had pensions, you had health care taken care of by your children who loved you and who wanted to ensure that your old age was as happy as possible. And you had all the joys of grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. And so if you go through life and you don't have kids, you save a lot of money. Your kids can be pretty, pretty pricey. And you save a lot of money, and so you should, of course, be saving that money for your old age. If you have spent the money that you otherwise would have spent on kids, on you know, your materialistic, hedonistic comforts, you haven't saved your old age and you don't have kids to take care of you. Again, you have this giant desire for government uh, old age pension programs, which ironically, of course, other people, um, <laughs> other, people other people's kids have to pay for.
1: Have you seen that clip of that um that feminist in her 80s talking about how it was the biggest mistake of her life? Um, I think I saw it on Sargon of a COD's channel. But she's talking about how feminism is just great for women in their 20s. And then you hit your 30s and you're like, oh my God. And she's in her 80s and she's like, I have no family. This was the worst thing I ever could have done for myself. I'm lonely. I'm old. I'm going to die alone. And I'm like, why can we not just show everybody this? Because feminism is great for women in their 20s. You don't have any obligations. You don't have to worry about children or anything. But, but later in life, it just becomes a... Disaster! You've destroyed your entire life because of decisions that you made in your 20s and early 30s.
0: And you have to hide the old from the young so they don't hear this, so they don't see this. You always hear, oh, old people have no voice in society. It's like, <laughs> yes, because a lot of times the old people's voice in society is leftism and socialism and feminism killed the happiness of the second half of my life. And and so uh, you have to kind of hide all of this misery. I mean, if, if um, uh, as we've pointed out or has been pointed out in your show and other people's show – Feminism has been associated with continuing rates of female unhappiness, misery, piled upon misery. Decade after decade, women are getting unhappier and unhappier. And there's this weird thing where there seems to be no choice but to double down. Like to question any of these basic (laughs) principles has become so unthinkable to most people, it's like, well, okay, it's true that I'm getting more and more and more miserable. So I've got to do more and more and more of exactly the same stuff that's making me miserable. That seems exactly like an addiction to me, right? The guy who's uh, strung out on cocaine, he knows it's bad for him. He knows it's going to cost him his family, his job, his savings, his health. He knows all of that. So it makes him so stressed he goes out and gets more cocaine. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a terrible addiction where you can't even question the fundamentals or the basics of that, which seems to be driving so much unhappiness in the world.
1: But I'm somewhat hopeful because I feel like social pressures are changing feminist perceptions. I mean, you see Buzzfeed videos about feminists how downvoted they are. There are tangible ways that they can tell that their ideas are not welcome, especially in this sphere. And then we see people like um like Lacey Green, and I've talked about this a lot on my channel. But this specifically made me very hopeful because she got in a relationship with somebody that is um you know right leaning, and then she totally abandoned her feminist principles and i'm like that maybe that's what women need they need the social pressure they need people around them saying this is idiotic this is going to ruin your life you need to rethink what you believed in your 20s um find a good man and you'll become more conservative you'll become more traditional
0: Oh, so I didn't know that's what happened with Lacey because uh, I have a terrific weakness for gossip. It's it's my only weakness, as you can well imagine, <laughs> Rebecca. Terrific weakness for gossip. And I didn't know, I knew that she had put out some more conciliatory videos and she'd also questioned some of the leftist narrative, which, yes. I mean, my goodness, the blowback was She's, astonishing. oh yeah,
1: her whole family has been doxed. The feminists that she used to be friends with released her family's addresses and everything like that. Yeah, she's dating Chris Raygun, um, another YouTuber you might be familiar with. They're public, with their relationship, um... But I, but she released the red pill videos before we found out about that. Um, and really, all she was doing was was questioning. She was just saying, like, you know, n- nobody on my side is is open to even have a discussion with these people. And then the way they treated her, I'm sure that that um, really deepened her skepticism about feminism and the community.
0: Well, that I think we see. Ooh, get a little gossip fest. Excellent. But that that I see <laughs> as as pretty common uh, in, in the left, which is. They, you know, it's all about diversity and inclusiveness and multiple viewpoints and diversity is a strength and so on. But if you even question a tiny thread of the general tapestry of leftist rhetoric, man, I mean, I think it's easier to get out of a cult than it is to get out of these people, you know, and, and, and this.
1: And it isn't just that they want to criticize you. They want to ruin your life. And that is something that I've seen so much on the left, and I don't really see it on the right. I don't see us employing the same kind of taxid- tactics with doxing and and uh, trying to ruin somebody's career. Um, I was doxxed in October, and it was by a, um, a leftist St. Louis publication, which is my hometown. It was the Riverfront Times. And the editor of the publication, after he published this horrible hit piece on me, calling me a racist Nazi, all sorts of stuff, my hometown newspaper, um, he mined the comments for my last name and then published the first and last name of my brother and father and their occupations on Twitter. This isn't a, a national leftist news publication. I just, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, you know, my family didn't ask for this so they will come after the people that you love we know that this is what their main tactic is so if i were on the left and i was thinking of leaving i mean i I think i would probably think twice about it because the people that i love would become embroiled in this like like it happened to me
0: i think that what it does is that broadcasts the ferocity of this kind of mindset the the ugliness and the viciousness and the lack of rational arguments and hopefully that does undermine credibility elsewhere when uh, it comes to people's receptivity towards these perspectives,
1: they s- still seem to be under the impression, though, that the right is, that the the right are the only people that are employing um, violence or any any kind of tactics like that. And I don't know how that they can keep this perception going when it's when it's so demonstrably untrue. Um, I was at the Milo event where there was a shooting. This was in January and the reports I I was reading about the Milo event. I was like, this is just, this is a straight up lie. Like every report I read, it was like the right was bringing all this violence. I saw people walking up and down the lines, like, like don't even yell. We want to make sure that we appear to be peaceful and everything. Don't start anything. And I did not see anybody on the right starting anything at all. It was all Antifa.
0: Well, that I think we've seen pretty consistently. Uh, and, um, I think that lie is again starting to unravel for those who are willing to cross the aisle and look at feeds or information on the internet or elsewhere that's not part of the sort of mirrored perspective of where they've come from if it's not an echo chamber then it's starting to unravel my particular concern is that people aren't looking like everyone's in in separate movie houses watching different movies there's no crossover and so, you know, there are people who genuinely believe, you know, well the the right is violent and the left is peaceful and and that's the only way it ever goes down. And the right wants to shut down free speech and the right, you know, and all of these because that's what you hear broadcast uh, in the leftist sort of media or the leftist narrative. And on the right, which I think there's a lot more truth in because I do sort of look at both sides they are uh, putting out a lot more of these basic facts. But if there's not that cross-pollination of facts between these two worlds, I don't see how this doesn't just continue to escalate.
1: And I've been watching the media, the leftist media, totally unravel. And I've got to say that I thought that they would have... um fallen by now. I mean, I, I just don't understand how people have any faith in CNN at this point, knowing what kind of, you know, lack of journalistic integrity that they, that they have. Uh, but people do, and I think that it's this hardwiring, and they have an older audience, so does Fox, um, and I guess all mainstream media outlets. So I think that in time, this will kind of, kind of change naturally. I mean, they're not, they don't seem like they're really able to pull in this young blood, um, although Fox is doing a pretty good job with Tucker. <clears throat> Everyone I, loves Tucker.
0: <laughs> yes. Agreed. And I think, though, it's different because I've never been dependent on the state in the way that people are. Uh, the, the, there are you know, tens of millions of people across America, by some estimates, it's up to half the American population, who are partially or even totally dependent on the state for their income. There is this, I think, foundational terror on people who are dependent on the state That, you know, it's unsustainable and like, take him, not me, take him, not me. (laughs) And because it's unsustainable, uh, it's going to get cut. And and they just want to make sure, you know, that the the steady conveyor belt of government cheese keeps rolling up to the door because they've made decisions that are somewhat irrevocable at the moment. I, I mean, I don't mean that they're unsolvable. Yeah, that's
1: true. But they inexplicably support programs and policies that put more pressure on government spending. And they mm. advocate for immigration. I'm like, why Why would you people do that if you're government dependent? It seems so counterintuitive to me. <clears throat> there are limited resources.
0: <laughs> right. No, that's a, I had, uh, that's a very, very good point. Yeah. But again, that's also, I think, uh, just sort of putting it in the addiction context, I think that has something to do with the addict acts in ways that are so self-destructive. Uh, that you know you can have an addiction even to hard drugs that is manageable that that you can still function uh, in your life but there's some people again it's this snowball this avalanche uh, this this um, they just continue to do more and more things that are again end up destroying uh, everything that they claim they need that they depend on that and so you're right yeah I mean so many of these policies are going to end up escalating uh, spending to the point where it is going to collapse even sooner. Uh, and, and maybe that's, I mean, part of the ad- addiction I think has to do with, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to go full in, man. I'm like, I'm n- n- nothing but gas because that way <laughs> um, I get out of the car one way or the other, like either in a bag or through the windshield, but I'm out of the car one way or the right, other. Right. And that idea that sort of worse becomes better, that let's just lo- lay down the government with even more spending and more uh, more um, uh, unfunded liabilities so that we can just re- reset and reboot this whole system. I, can, I, I sort of veer back and forth between say, Sympathy for that perspective.
1: I don't know. I think some of it's an addiction to the necessity, um, and then some of it's an addiction to the feeling that you get when you tell somebody that you advocate a policy that's going to help somebody that's in worse shape than you. I mean, it's a, it's virtue signaling. I mean, it makes people feel good. It makes them feel righteous. And I think in many ways, that's just as dangerous as the necessity of uh, government dependence.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that uh, the endorphin rush of unearned virtue or virtue signaling <laughs> that people say, yeah, no, I think that's very toxic. Now, when you when you first started doing your videos, Rebecca, you were talking about your fears about coming out. You know, and it's funny, you know, yeah. being being a, a conservative or at least not being on the left uh, is like it's like being gay in the fifties in certain districts it is. these days, right? <laughs> it so, really is. how has it played out relative to what you hoped and hoped for and, and feared for?
1: Um I mean I'm I'm definitely socially isolated in Seattle. I don't I don't have a lot of friends here. Um but it has opened up a a whole community of people that I'm I agree with and that are like-minded. And so that's been that's been really helpful. It's been really comforting to know that, like, even though they're not right here, that that they're all over the world. So that's been reassuring. Um, but as far as my fears from the beginning of the channel, most of that was that I knew that I was going to get fired because I was working for a Seattle firm and I had a feminist boss. And I was like, man, if they find out about this, like they are gonna fire me in two seconds. Um, so once my channel hit about, I don't know, five or ten thousand subscribers, I was like, I, I have to quit. Like they will find out about this. And of course, they did. They called me after um I quit, and they're like, you got to take these some of these videos down you know and uh, well, you because quit. i had mentioned that yeah i had mentioned that i worked for like a specific organization they were saying it was a violation of the nda but it really wasn't i i read over the nda um and then after that uh some leftist was tweeting to the company like you hired this racist bigot so i i know i I got fired or i got doxed like a few months later i know that if i would have held on i i would have gotten fired um but luckily youtube it's an income it's my full-time job now so it doesn't come with the same set of fears like being socially alienated i can handle that i've got all these friends on the internet um, and i don't have the financial concern anymore and then my other concern was um about my family but once doxing happens it's really scary but it's also really liberating it can only happen one time um and so they had just you know, they they didn't have any power after that. That the threatened docs wasn't there,
0: well, so now I feel course, really free. You, I feel like I you know, if this. something like that happens to your family, they're they're gonna pull with you. They're gonna be like, oh, so this is what you're facing. You know, you you go.
1: Yeah, my family's been so super supportive. My dad is my number one fan. I didn't tell them about my channel for about three months because I was like, I don't know, they might be mad about this. But then they discovered it and uh, they binge watch all the videos and they, they call me and they're like, your subscriber count is up, we're so proud of you. And so it's just having that, um, that's so comforting to me to know that like my family's on board and they aren't resentful about, about the doxing and things like that. So it's great to have them around.
0: Right. Now, how did this, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the timeline of your channel and then the great pewdiepie inspired demonetization push you know when they unjustly went after uh pewdiepie right. and then well, you know the whole story how did that play into what you're doing on youtube
1: um i'm in my i think 15th month of my channel so i got a good six to eight months of ad revenue before they pulled the plug but as of right now um I'm almost completely crowdfunded. I get almost no ad revenue. Everything's demonetized. Even though I don't tag anything, I have kind of vague titles and things like that. They are still really, I don't know if anybody's really making any money from ad revenue. But um, luckily there's Patreon, there's other ways to crowdfund our projects. And so I can still invest time in it and have it be a full-time job.
0: If, if I were on the left, I would not go so hard after non-leftists because what it does is it means you have to be all in. You know, if if it was like, oh, you know, you might get a little bit of negative pushback here or there or whatever, you'd be like, okay, well, I'll try and put, you know, one leg on the job and one leg on YouTube, and I'll see if I can navigate this. But what happens is they go after you so hard that you kind of have to go all in on what it is you're doing online. I mean, that there's no plan B, there's no backup, there's like, okay, I'm... it's it's too it's too fast to jump out of the car now. So I guess I gotta learn how to steer. I mean, it's it's there is no plan B anymore, and I think that really engenders a huge amount of commitment from non-leftists.
1: That's true, and their disdain for the right has just made me less sympathetic to their position. I mean, we're we're. The right's growing, people from the left are coming to the right. I don't think that it's going the other way because pe- we see, like I said before, we see the tactics that the left employs and people on the right are like, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I can't ever go to that side.
0: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I know what you mean, but the problem is, of course, that there's this giant leftist factory like your alma mater and other places. There's this giant leftist factory right. that keeps cranking out these these people. And uh, I don't know whether the medicine is is keeping pace with the infection, so to speak.
1: I don't know. I mean, Mizzou enrollment's down 35%, which makes me really hopeful. I I kind of feel like the higher education bubble is going to burst because you come out of college now less skilled somehow than you went into college because you've got a victim complex. You've learned a bunch of things that make you a more useless employee, um, you know, harder to get along with and everything. And how sustainable is this? I mean, you've got a huge amount of debt. uh, You're unemployable how many more people can do this before they realize that it is a poor financial investment to go to college unless you're majoring in some kind of stem field or something like that
0: yeah i mean my my position is uh, if if you can get by in any way to do what you want to do in life without going to college don't go to college it's very right, it's very right. risky and um not just financially but like in your soul, in your psychology, in your happiness with yourself, they will try to change your brain. And some of those changes can be permanent. It is um, it is a terrifying thing to submit yourself to that kind of authority because either you're going to end up agreeing with them if like they're lefty indoctrinators, which a lot of them are, you're either going to end up agreeing with them for real, which is horrifying enough, or you're going to spend a couple of years biting your tongue, navigating the minefield and and fighting back in a battle where you have no particular authority. And I just and I can't see what the upside years, is too. at all.
1: 18 to 22. I mean, that is perhaps some of the worst time to be indoctrinating people, especially when they're away from home. Um, but I will say that I had a humanities professor, Professor Bondison. It was a two year class um, And he guided us through the classics and I think perhaps single-handedly prevented my indoctrination from Mizzou. So I can't say that it was all bad. I definitely had some good professors and being in the business school somewhat shielded me from this um, social justice warrior element at at Mizzou.
0: Right, right. When you got into wall street uh or you got into the sort of financial sector what was the least uh, i guess positive uh, experience or perspective that you had of you know finally becoming an adult getting into the working world and all that
1: um i was very surprised to find out that my level of happiness did not at all move in conjunction with my income uh, so at the time that I was making the most money in my life, which is uh, probably when I was working on Wall Street, it, it has got to be when I was the uh, the most unhappy. And so that was a really valuable lesson for me to learn. I'm like, I'd rather take my income down and have a lower stress job, I will have a better quality of life. Um, although that's not super specific, I'm not really sure if that's what you were asking. Uh, but more specifically, I'd say that the worst thing that I experienced was watching this older generation of women that had destroyed their lives that had a huge a huge impact on me i um, watching these mothers try to be good mothers but fail miserably try to be good at their jobs fail miserably um and I'd, I'd say that of all of the things that happened on Wall Street all the experience I had that was the most influential and the most formative for me
0: did the women talk to you about it or was it more just like looking at the fish tank and seeing the fish constantly having a terrible time
1: um At my most recent job, uh, there were two older women that were married, but, or one of them just had a boyfriend, but they they were childless. And I would always talk about how, you know, my plans are having kids um, and everything like that. And I remember one of them coming to my office and and her being like, like, why would you ever want to have, you don't want to have children. You know, you don't want to have children. And I didn't realize until months later, but like, Uh, an older woman that I can tell is unhappy in life, telling me not to have children that, that just blows my mind now. Like I would never give somebody unsolicited advice like that, um, of that magnitude. And I, it made me realize, you know, older career women, it's, to some degree it's about sabotage i I really do think so and i and i think that they you're right that they're doubling down they realize they've ruined their lives um and so they want to bring in younger women into the fold of of their life mistakes and i think that that's so detrimental it's so selfish um but we see that across feminism it's not necessarily just in corporate america i think that's feminist as a whole if we look at them, I mean, it's, it's all older feminists telling younger women that marriage is slavery and so is traditionalism, that you don't want children, they're a burden, and that you should live in this, in this realm of hedonism for your whole life, and that's what will make you happy. And, and we're just doing people such a disservice. We're encouraging them to destroy their lives.
0: Well, and it seems so believable when, you know, you're a young, healthy, attractive woman and the world is is your oyster and, you know, guys line up to buy you drinks from here to eternity and you get all of this positive attention and, and feedback. I, you know, I can't, I can't imagine as a man what it must be like to be a very attractive young woman. Like, I just, I, I can't conceive of it because that level of, quote, privilege, you know, it's all supposed to be male privilege and so on. But for young women, when they say, oh, you know, you don't need to plan for the second half of your life, this kind of, this is implication that how it is now is how it's going to continue forever. And man, you know, what they call the wall or when women get older and so on. It, I think, is a fundamental shock that really needs to be swept under the rug. You, you can't have a voice for these women who are like, whoa, whoa, hang on, like I'm now 34 and I want to settle down, but there aren't any decent guys around in the same way that there aren't generally any really good used cars on the market, because if you get a really great used car, you don't sell it. And <laughs> I think that aspect, when things really change, it used to be very common. You know, it used to be. I mean, there's tons of poems and, and, and plays about it, even entire novels about it. That you, you you're going to be you're going to get older and less pretty, and you're going to get right, older right. and less and fertile. So plan for them, right. like plan for down the road now, and don't expect this to last mm-hmm. forever. But that seems to have been completely uh, erased uh, from from our general accumulated wisdom in society.
1: Right, and I think it would have taken care of itself if um, women were facing more consequences than they are. I mean, they can they can basically marry the state. And I know um, a lot of really handsome, uh, not particularly beta men that are um, raising other people's children, that, that are in relationships where they're raising young children too, like several young children that aren't their own. They're like, this is just a modern relationship. I'm like, are women going to face no consequences for this? Um, so you would think that like you know, when women get older, that, you know, they have no options and everything like that, and they would face natural consequences. But especially in Seattle, I'm not really seeing that. And that's disheartening, because how are they going to reform their behavior without consequences?
0: But you said that the money didn't make up for the unhappiness. Oh, and in fact, the the two were correlated, whether directly or indirectly. So women can marry the state but the state doesn't go to bed with them. The state doesn't wake up in the morning with them. The state doesn't give them a foot rub. The state doesn't bring them chicken soup when they're unwell. The state right. can give you money and the state can eliminate certain material consequences from bad decisions, but it can't fill the hole in your heart. It can be a provider, but it can't be a husband. It can't be a lover. And that aspect of things is not really, I think, I think it's showing up, as you say, in the increasing unhappiness and in the antidepressants in the increasingly bizarre pronouncements that come out of uh, some of the uh, the feminist or leftist camp uh, about what it means to be human and, and, and the endlessness of the revolution, you know, that the free market is great because the free market says, okay, if there's something bad in the world, have yourself a revolution, that's wonderful. And then when you solve that problem... Stop having that revolution and go on and find some other injustice. But because the government's funding it so much, all of this leftist stuff, the government funds it so, so much, there is no way to know when to stop. And this is why there's this weird continual escalation where now it's like the big problem that women face is is a guy who's trying to give his nutsack some air by spreading his legs on a subway. You know, it's like it, it is so bizarre how much it escalates and how much the emotional, negativity or the emotional bitterness that accumulates for women uh, who, who have made these kinds of choices just doesn't exist in social discourse. So I would really like it if there was more of a voice for women who have regretted some of these decisions. You know, like it's like the fat positivity movement. I'd like also to hear about the women who had a giant heart attack or the women who have horrible knee problems, or, you know, the women who can't get pregnant because they're obese. I would also like to hear a little bit of that. This relentless, yay, everyone gets a trophy stuff. It's appropriate for toddlers. You know, like when your baby is learning <laughs> to roll over or learning to walk, it's like, yay, good job. You don't <laughs> criticize them for their form when they're hanging onto a table and trying to make it around a couch. So this sort of relentless positivity is, is great for toddlers and infants it's not great, certainly not great for adults. And I sort of feel like women's maternal instincts have spilled over from the empty nest to the mothering and the scolding often of society as a whole.
1: Yeah, it's this Mother Merkel concept. I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that she's childless and that she embraces this image of being the, the mother of all of these migrants. I mean, it's just it's just misplaced maternal instinct to me. Um, and we say that a lot in politics.
0: Right. I often wonder, there's a lot of EU leaders who are childless, in fact, and I often wonder if part of the urge to not have children, part of the sort of programming or propaganda to not have kids, has to do with making sure that smart people are not as much invested in the future of society. Because it's the smart people who listen to, oh, wow, well, gosh, there's a lot of extra people in the world. We do, we do have to be concerned about resources. So, blah, blah, blah. like, this is, that's not IQ 90 stuff, right? That's smarter people. And smarter people are generally not very helpful to those in power, unless they can be co opted by giving them plum positions in professorships and, and in the media and so on. But if you can convince smart people to not have kids, Smart people innately drift towards hedonism. There's something about having kids where you say, "Okay, I am going to stretch out, stretch out my uh, my perspective a little bit. I got to look a little bit over the horizon because I also right. want there to be a great uh, uh, world for my children uh, to grow up in." So, convince people, if you convince either less intelligent people to not have kids and convince smarter people to not have kids, it just seems that hedonism inevitably starts to take over because the self-sacrifices and the long-term horizon planning of having kids is just taken away from the most able people in society.
1: How selfish, though, to detonate your society to ensure a future voting block. I mean, it's not the first <laughs> time this has happened, but it never ceases to amaze me. I'm like, you know, these people will put their most basic instincts um, to rest in favor of just destroying our culture and our society. Um and that was another reason that I started my channel. It's this this fear that my children are not going to inherit an inhabitable world, and that's a a really deep seated fear for me. And so I, I try to do what I can. I mean, you have such a, a larger influence than I do. Um, but but you know, you, you wake up every day and you're like, what can I do to to stop this? To 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 help it get a little bit better? To do anything that I can.
0: Yeah, larger influence, but also got nine years head start. I wouldn't count that for too much. We'll (laughs) check back in eight and a half years and we'll see (laughs) who has the larger influence. Uh, And that, I think, is is something that is really worth reminding people that we're all here because people chose to have children and people chose to take care of those kids and raise those kids. Everyone who's alive has benefited from (laughs) pro-child decisions. And I sort of feel, and it's not a a great argument, but to me it's an emotionally compelling argument, so take it for what it's worth, but, you know, four billion years of evolution culminates in you and in me, and it's because... For four billion years, various organisms have said, "Okay, fine. Maybe I'll spend a little bit less time playing video games, and maybe I'll spend a little <laughs> bit more time, um, you know, raising raising children and, and doing all that stuff." There's been a huge amount of sacrifices all the way from single celled organisms, you know, through through uh, you know, like crayfish and and frogs, and all the way up to us, the most complex beings in the universe is it really fair? You know, it's like this baton race that's been going on. Here, you take this baton. Now you take this baton. You have some kids, you have some offspring. And then you're like, after 4 billion years, and I don't even know how many millions of generations, you're like, nope, no baton for me. It all ends here. And it's like, I just feel that's kind of an insult to all of the animals that, you know, fought and died and Reproduced to get you to where you are. No, none of that for me. Four billion years, but you know we're kind of done about now. I think we're we're I down. know.
1: And just in exchange for for a lifetime of hedonism. And doesn't that get boring? I mean, I I see people in their late twenties and um in their thirties that just have hedonism burnout and they're like, I just want to have some responsibilities and have a kid. And I'm like, all right, I understand that position. But then I also see people in like their 40s and 50s that are still going at it really hard. They're still partying. They're still picking up chicks in bars. I'm like, how has that not gotten old? I mean, I just I just don't get that mindset. Like don't you want adult responsibilities? Do you want to go through life just worrying about yourself, just worrying about your pleasures, your immediate pleasures.
0: Well, the other thing too is that hedonism is a lot more fun in your twenties than it is in your sixties. You know, yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, I'm sure
1: you can't do in it it your sixties. It's like, well,
0: I'm I'm too creaky to be really hedonistic, and like, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm like, I'm I'm going to be what 51 this year. I'm mostly okay, pretty much the same. Stay healthy, exercise, and all that. But there's a little bit of, you know, just a few sounds, a little bit, a little bit here and there. You know, you get it, up and it's like, it's like, whoa, was that the floorboard? No. Oh my goodness, that came from me. <laughs> you know, and it's it's a different kind of thing. Years, I used to be able to go out and completely face plant in an entire vat of Indian food and be perfectly fine. And now it's like, <laughs> oh more. Well, we all have to get into all the details, but uh, uh, hedonism is a lot more fun when you're younger, and it seems like it's just going to last forever. And it's going to be as much fun to be hedonistic when you're 70 as it is when you're 20. And the answer is, no, it won't be. It really won't be. Because, of course, the hedonism, if it has to do with not eating well, uh, not, not getting enough sleep, and and or, or over-exercise. Like, I know people who are older. Uh, yeah, we were ski instructors for 30 years, and now I can't <laughs> bend my leg, you know, and it's horrible. Right. And so the hedonism, it really begins to fade out. I, I'm just I'm at the beginning of that road, so I'm just looking down staring down that and saying, okay, I think I did things pretty much okay, you know I was pretty healthy most of my life. but um, by the time it shows up that hedonism isn't any fun uh, or becomes less fun as you go older, you, you again, you can't sort of circle back and say, well, you know, now I'm going to have a whole bunch of kids because you don't need, to be, you know, physically strong, limber, and healthy, to really enjoy your grandkids. You know, it doesn't hurt, but it's not essential. And this uh, satisfaction of people around you when you get older, I mean, 50-50, your friends are going to die before you do. Or, you know, there may be some crack up, you know, maybe someone like Donald Trump comes along and it's like this giant wood chipper axe that goes down between uh, the the tree trunks of friendships and splits people off. Or maybe, you know, you have some sort of divergence or someone goes crazy or someone gets married to the wrong person or has a bad divorce and you got to pick sides. And you don't know there is a continuity to family that is tough to reproduce in mere friendships, as you've sort of found out with some of your political perspectives. And if you have that foundation of companionship in your old age... Marriage is great, but again, could get divorced 50-50, they're going to die before you do. And you really need to build for that old age. You know, the 65 to 85, that's a long time. And that's a long time to be lonely and inconsequential in the world.
1: But I, I do have sympathy, especially for millennials, because we have been taught to indulge this hedonism above all else, that what we feel is the most important thing going on, and we weren't given a lot of uh, lessons in believing in things that were larger than us. And I think that part of that is manifested itself in this toddler generation, this mentality that we're children, we have to be treated like
0: children. Right. Is there a, you, you mentioned earlier sort of recoiling against the easy divorce. And of course, a lot of Gen Xs, even millennials and even younger have grown up with the horror of divorce and how it plays out and it's never good. It's, I mean, it's, it's always terrible. And, and you know, I think of people who call it in my show. Oh, man, it's so horrible because they're like, oh, yes, we got divorced, but we're still wonderful friends. We get along beautifully and so on. It's like, then why did you get divorced? Why did you get divorced? Why? <laughs> I mean, it's incomprehensible to the kids or it's, or it's horribly comprehensible. Because if the parents are really civilized mm-hmm. and wonderful and, and, and all mature about it, and it's like, well, then why are you taking a giant MOAB to the family if you really are getting along well and you're just wonderful friends and so on? Or if it's some, you know, horrible plate throwing, screaming, smashing, you know, trailer park situation, then the kids are like, oh, well, that was really horrible. And let's make sure we never do that. So I think there is it's always it's tough to remember this pendulum, you know, the pendulum that swings. People get sick and tired of this easy hedonism of easy divorce. And especially, you know, oh, we care. We do anything for our kids. Well, except pick the right person or stay together. And so I think there is this. Pushback or this this blowback, but is there how deep do you think it goes? I think that society is in going in such a bad direction that everything to me is open to question. But I'm not sure how far the younger people are questioning it, or whether it's just sort of an emotional pushback to bad experiences.
1: Um, I've read that Generation Z is uh, the most conservative generation since I believe the greatest generation. I might be wrong about that. Um, so I do feel like the the pendulum is is swinging back. People don't want to get divorced. they saw this horrible um all these horrible divorces in their in their parents generation. and baby boomers, I think they really were the first generation that decided that no longer being in love was an appropriate reason for divorce. I haven't I haven't seen this in previous generations. And I think that um millennials and generation Z, they realize that you go through periods in a relationship where you're in love, where you're out of love, where you have problems, and that what's gonna benefit the kid the most is um, for the parents to stick together, um, basically no matter what. Like my parents did; they've been married for 37 years, and it wasn't perfect, but I thank God every day that they stayed together and that my mom stayed home with me. I think that that made all three of us um, more well-rounded people.
0: And it's interesting how, in this supposed claim for diversity, it's interesting how that perspective is automatically devalued. You know, right. you have a perspective of a stable, relatively happy household with a mother who stayed home and committed herself to her kids. And that is a really important perspective. I mean, just your own personal experience bringing to the world. But statistically, we know that is by far, by far the very best environment for children. Like bar none, not even a close second. And right, in fact, right. it's it's sort of like, Again, I'm sort of trying to I come up, like, every week I'm trying to think of a great word for frac or whatever it is. Like, it, it's not like, well, single moms are only one on a scale of happiness, but, you know, married couples are 10. It's like, no, single moms, like, minus 10. It's like, it's not even like, well, this is better than. It's like, better than in the way that a really nice pasta is better than roadkill uh, by the side of the road. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's on opposite sides of the entire pole like I was reading this statistic this you're dozens of times more likely to be abused or molested if you're in a single mom household that is not like well you know married couples it's just better it's like it's not better it's it's on the right side of the equation and all this sort of alternative family structures tend to be uh, disastrous for a children and for a society that claims, oh, you know, we care about the kids and, you know, we, we need we need government education for the for the kids so the kids get well educated. It's like, where is this in all of our calculations? Uh, where is it in terms of national debt? Where is it in terms of educational quality, school choice? Where is it in terms of family staying together? Where is it in terms of just, if you love kids so much as a society, why are you trying to everyone, tell everyone not to have them?
1: Right, and the perception of stay-at-home moms is just absolutely terrible. I remember one of my corporate jobs, um, I told an older childless woman that I wanted to do that, and she goes, a stay-at-home mom, what would you even do all day? She just said that, like, right to me. What would you even do all day? Like, having a child is nothing to this paper-pushing bullshit job that she has. And I was just, like, dumbfounded. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, change diapers, take care of a human life, form an individual into a successful member of society that's not important to you at all? Um, And so there really is this perception of stay-at-home moms being stupid, uneducated, lazy, um, and that needs to change if we're going to have a generation of children that are well-adjusted individuals.
0: Here's the big secret. I've got to tell just you, no one else. Here's here's the big secret. Kids are the most fascinating things around. They are so incredibly absorbing and interesting and fascinating. It's something new every day. Uh, It is uh, watching their personalities emerge, watching their choices emerge from a fairly, and I mean, there's personalities to some degree, to significant degrees, genetic. But seeing how it manifests and grows and seeing, I mean, it is... The most fascinating thing. I mean, I've done some fascinating things in my life. Being a father is by far the most fascinating thing. And I'm not the dumbest guy on the planet. So if I find it fascinating, I find it <laughs> hard to say, well, you know, let's just outsource it to people who can't really speak English very well and have an IQ of 87. I just don't see how that is even more possible. But I think what they're doing, I don't know this woman, of course, from anyone, but what I would guess is what they're doing is they're saying, well, I was institutionalized as a kid. I didn't have. You know, and and being a child is nothing more than being fed and watered. You're like a, you're a plant. You know, like you keep them in the sunlight. You know, give them some water. Uh, maybe a little push a little plant food into their soil once in a while. There is no individual connection, no personal soul connection with uh, no bond, no bond, right, with with a caregiver. And saying, well, what do single moms do all day? Um,
1: <laughs> stay at home, or
0: stay at home parents. Stay, what do they do all day? Well, you do the most important and fascinating thing that there is, which is to grow an entire human life and make your contribution to the peace and productivity of the planet. I mean, it's not only what do you do, it's like, what else would you want to do fundamentally if you have a choice?
1: I have an older sister and uh, she had the first baby in the family um, almost a year ago and just... Watching her this first year of her life, it's been the most amazing thing that i've ever seen i mean she she really does learn something new every day, and now she's saying "Baby and mama and she's like standing up and and i just I just can't believe it and and I watch the bond they have, I watch her breastfeeding, and I'm like, why would any woman why would any woman not want this? It's such a beautiful thing,
0: yeah, yeah, and it deepens and enriches your own life, and I don't know there's something on the more extreme left, which is the idea that human beings, being sort of product of their economic circumstances, you know, this economic determinism—you know, your your fundamental personality or characteristic or even intelligence or opportunities are all defined by your relationship to the means of production. <laughs> I mean, it's just—I mean, it's just such nonsense. There's such a richness and depth uh, in human life and in the human experience that, to me, just trying to explain it away with bland economic determinism is so hollowed out, it seems just completely empty, almost sociopathic to me. But this idea that we are just sort of interchangeable and replaceable means that one caregiver is the same as another caregiver, it doesn't really matter, uh, and the kid's going to grow up to be who they are regardless. Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, you don't sit there and talk to your plants that much, I hope, right? Because you know, they're not going to go up to become bloggers or whatever. They're not going to do that much in the world. But how you treat your children is foundational to how the world goes. And it's not just interchangeable at all. It's not interchangeable at all. The connection that you have with your kids, the investment that you have with your kids is absolutely irreplaceable. It can't be outsourced. It can't be subbed. It doesn't mean other people can't have a wonderful relationship with your kids, but their primary parental relationship with your kids is is foundational. But on the left, it's like, you don't need to be there. What does it matter? You can just have someone else do it. It doesn't matter. Everyone's interchangeable. That is not viewing human beings as human beings, but just, I don't know, like garden gnomes or something. What does one garden gnome matter relative to another? It doesn't matter, but it does matter. We're individuals.
1: Right, like when I see um, my sister leave the room when I'm holding the baby and I see her reaction, like she doesn't want me. She wants her mom, only only her mom. Right. Um. And so just the fact that like, you know, I have friends, um, that have kids and they'll post on Facebook like, oh, my kid did like a craft project at daycare today and it's like a six month old. Like your kid didn't do a craft project today. Your kid screamed all day for his mom while some overwhelmed daycare worker like drew some stuff you know, haphazardly on a paper and was like, look at what your kid did. Um, they're just in total denial about abandoning their kids. Just total denial.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and it's funny too because there's something about my history that has sort of uniquely prepared me for this kind of stuff, because I worked in a daycare for years as a teenager. I actually made an arrangement with the school to get out of school early because I had to take a couple of buses to get to the daycare. And I worked there for a couple of years. I did summers there. And I've I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. This desperate desire to bond with anyone who's got any semblance of credibility around, particularly a male, since most of these, of course, were kids without uh, without living fathers or even fathers around at all. And the fact that if kids don't have a bond with their parents, having a bond with your parents allows you to outsource responsibility in adulthood so that you can enjoy your childhood. The legion of, I don't know, little men and women, you know, the, the kids who have no particular bond where they can trust their parents to take care of things uh, and where they have given too much responsibility too early or too much independence too early, you need to shield your kids from the world you know in the way that you need to shield you know young young trees from excessive winds and fire and so on you need to shield your kids from the world it gives them a wonderful space to grow up strong and and security to grow up strong and there are so many kids out there who have this little lord fauntleroy this like little prince little princess thing where they've had to grow up far too quickly and it really distorts uh, the personality and i think it's really hard to overcome And I think that's one of the reasons why if you have a productive relationship with somebody who has authority over you as a parent, then you can outgrow that relationship as you grow up. My particular concern is that when they don't have a productive bond that they can outgrow with an authority figure People spend their entire lives looking for some kind of authority figure, someone to take care of them. If you're a woman and you grow up, I think, without a productive relationship to an authority figure that you can outgrow, I think you spend the rest of your life looking for that authority figure, and then when some good-looking, swift-talking politician who's tall and hairy comes along and says, don't you worry, I can get you all the free stuff in the world, because you haven't had that relationship but you've outgrown with an authority figure, I think you're very susceptible to having your buttons pushed. And the fact that politicians so often put voters in a childlike position, oh, things happen to you, you're a victim, you didn't make choices, or you weren't responsible for your choices, so let me just sidle right up in my pony of infinite fiat currency and take care of your little lady or little man. They put you in this child position because I think without parents around who are responsible, you kind of never grow up. And I think that's another reason why convincing parents to stay away from their kids creates this government-sized hole in their future personalities that I think is very hard for them to resist uh, those promises and protections offered by the government.
1: And that's the biggest weakness of the millennial generation. I mean, I think that we're the first real daycare generation, although maybe that's not true. But we never really got the skill set uh, to to have normal relationships, and i i resent I resent baby boomers for this i I've got to say <laughs> I do. I think that we would be doing a lot better if uh, parents would have just stayed together and that might have solved that might have solved all of these problems before they even existed in universities, especially
0: There was something that the baby boomers did, which I find hard to fathom. And maybe it was just, you know, the first flush of, hey, we've got birth control that's reliable, and we have a welfare state, and, you know, all restrictions have been set aside. But, you know, it took, I think they just recently found the oldest specimen of a human being, um, 300,000 years old, Um, oddly enough, a liberal on the Supreme Court. But um, so human beings are like, way old. And Think of how long it took to develop these basic structures in society, and how much suffering was engendered in the development of these basic structures within society. You know, like two person monogamy, and and uh, a sense of you know, and I increasingly come to respect the Christian contribution in this: uh, a sense of universal ethics, a sense of free will, a sense of personal responsibility, a sense of universal ethics and all of that, uh, two-parent households and, and um, the, the opposition to the purely animalistic form of hedonism that drives so many people. And it's like, it took, okay, 300,000 years to build this entire cathedral and less than one generation to tear most of it down. I mean, that to me is, is really astounding. And the lack of respect for history, That came along in the 1960s, where everything was just bourgeois prejudice, and you know you got to go and explore, and you got to go be yourself and feel yourself. It's like that Kramer versus Kramer movie. It's probably way before you. I know it's way before your time, but I watched it a couple of times in the theater when I was a kid and a pretty poor kid, so that meant a lot to me because you know in this movie, this Meryl Streep character, she just, just. leaves her family because she wants to go find herself. And it's like, look in the mirror, you're right there and you have kids, so stop being that, you know. The the husband wasn't abusive, he wasn't mean, he wasn't any of those kinds of things, but she just, and she's a hero. This is is like a a positive thing that she's uh, doing. And just 300,000 years to build up these human habits and then like one generation where people just said, eh, it's all prejudice, Pfft, forget it all. We got to burn the whole thing to the ground. And now we have to try and live in this smoking ruin and try and rebuild it. it took 300,000 years to build. One generation to set fire to it. And now we got to try and find the pieces again.
1: Let me ask you something, Stefan. I've, I've asked, I asked Lauren Southern this this week. Um, do you, are you optimistic for the future of Western civilization? Do you think that not necessarily as a society, but, um, but as a people will will survive?
0: Not in our current form. And I'm ambivalent about that too. Like, okay, so lots of crappy stuff is going on in the West. Right? I mean, and, and I've talked about it a lot in my show. So I, I don't want to necessarily paint the past in these rosy pictures as well. Something went way wrong in Western civilization in the 20th century. I mean, those two world wars, I mean, that was almost it. I mean, that was almost it for for everything. Not just us, but the entire species, the world, the planet, you name it. So something had to change. And we have, in the West, now gone 70 years without a major war. In the West. Lots of proxy wars, and they're horrible and and should be opposed and so on. But if we'd had another world war, that could have been it. So, you know, the fact that other people got kind of annoyed at Westerners, at Whiteys, well, you know, it is... um, we, we as a sort of culture, we had created these deadly devices, uh, these nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, and we had a 20th century habit of waging war around the world. So we had become an existential threat or a danger to the existence of life on the planet. And, you know, for people who all talk about, oh, it's overpopulation or it's environmentalism, it's like, nope, sorry, the way I grew up, it was East versus West, um, mm-hmm. capitalism versus communism, armed to the teeth with planet-destroying weapons. So something had to change. And we are a mix-up and shake-up kind of culture, Uh, the creative destruction, the, you know, because we have access to philosophy and principles and so on, and we tend to, at least in society as a whole, respect words over force, at least still to a large degree. Something had to change. Some of it has changed for the better, and some of it has changed for the worse. So, for instance, um, the fact that uh, in the West, there is a focus on better parenting, you know, there is a focus on more reasonable parenting. There is some opposition growing to to spanking and so on. I think that's been positive. I think that's been very, very healthy and very helpful. And there is a more renewed focus on equality before the law, you know, relative to genders and, and minorities and so on. Positive, positive stuff. We don't have a good habit as a society or as a culture of stopping in the middle you know, it's like the pendulum starts and it's like we have to go from Jim Crow and segregation to now we have affirmative action. And if you're white or Asian, you can't get into school. Like, it's like, can we just stop in the middle somewhere at some point and slow this thing down back and forth the whole time? And so, uh, you know, we, we've gone from invading other countries and other cultures and having giant imperialistic networks of questionable benefit to anyone except the ruling class in the West to now, open borders, everyone come in and let's do the reverse and see if that works out. Like, I just, I wish somewhere in the middle, you know, we want equality for women. No, we're going to swing way over to massive superiority women. No stopping in the middle. And of course, you know, thinkers and philosophers, I think it's our job. Like, okay, Aristotelian mean people, come on, it's been around for 2,500 years. Aristotelian means somewhere in between these two extremes, you know, let's do a little bit of this stuff. So I think we're in motion. And there's some positives. I think that there are some huge negatives and really, really challenging negatives. And I have significant c- concerns about civil war in the West, in the future. And I don't even think the too distant future. That is my uh, major and and grave concern. Uh, and so, you know, it's funny because it's the same thing with the pendulum. I could talk about this in the show. We've gone from like racial superiority and inferiority to we can't talk about any racial differences at all. And it's like, <laughs> can we just somewhere in the middle, you know, just somewhere in the middle would be would be a productive place. But, you know, that, of course, is, I think, up to the thinkers and the movers and shakers in the culture to try and achieve. So I would say that I am both optimistic and pessimistic enough, Rebecca, to work as hard as I possibly can to achieve a positive outcome. If If I was Truly pessimistic, then I would not be working for this. If I was truly optimistic, I wouldn't be working that hard for this because it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't, you know, wake up every morning and stretch my daughter. You know, she's going to grow anyway, <laughs> right? So, so I am. Uh, I, I think I'm at a sweet spot of optimism versus pessimism, p- pessimism, where I feel a very strong desire to do as much as I possibly can with the talents that I have. To get society to rest more in the middle, to to get society to to genuinely value diversity and, and openness and arguments and and thoughts and so on. If I if I were more optimistic, I'd be less motivated, and if I were more pessimistic, I'd be less yeah. motivated. So I guess I have maybe even the the vanity, or some would say even perhaps grandiosity, to say where's the future going to go? Am I optimistic or pessimistic? Both of those seem kind of passive to me, like. I hope my team wins, you know, if you're sitting in the right. in the stands. But if you're actually on the match, if you're actually, you have the ball and you're calling the plays, I believe that society goes where the most committed and strong-willed people take it. And I put myself in that category. I put you and other people in that category. It'll go where we want it to go. And that is a very powerful and grave responsibility, which means we have to really know what we're talking about before we start pushing society off in a new direction it can't go the way it's going without a doubt it is going to change i still very strongly believe it's going to change how we want it to change because we're right
1: that's very optimistic. I've I've been having a problem where I've been indulging my nihilism too much these last few weeks. This Comey thing really upset me because uh, I listened to it and I was like, this was a complete vindication. And then I look at leftist media and they're just talking about how impeachment is totally inevitable. And, and I keep thinking that I, there are so many highs and lows in this job. But I keep thinking the left has, um, they finally hit the wall. They can't, that they're going to have to adopt some element of self-awareness. They have to this time, right? And then they never do. Um, and so I find myself when things like this happening, indulging my nihilism a little bit, and I just have to not get excited that they're going to come to terms with you know, their worldview. I think that's I'm sorry a real to interrupt, problem.
0: but I mean you, you have <laughs> you're such a nice person and a reasonable person, and you've had such a nice and reasonable upbringing. You've not had truly crazy people in your life, right?
1: Oh, I've had plenty of.
0: No, but when you were growing up in instead <laughs> of your family environment and so on, where you didn't really have much of a choice. Yeah, I guess not, yeah. And uh, this is not an insult. I mean, good, <laughs> <laughs> good. I'm, 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 I think that's wonderful. But if you've had sort of inescapable crazy people in your life, they don't change. The, the left, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the answer is other than you, you have to delegitimize the moral authority that the left has. Mm-hmm. but they're not going to see, ev- I mean, most of them, a few, a few will, absolutely. And I hope it's the thought leaders and so on. And I have, I can't even tell you how much respect I have for people. We, we talked about some of them earlier, how much I have re- respect I have for people who are um, waking up to that, waking up to some of the challenges and they don't have to agree with us, but just start thinking for yourself. I mean, that's the whole point, right? But the people who are really committed, they're crazy. I mean, if you're not <laughs> going to be overturned in leftism, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was, was praising Hugo Chavez who created no. the giant economic sinkhole of Venezuela where people are losing 20 pounds a year and women are escaping to Colombia to sell their bodies for bread and people are pawning off their children on, on the local market. So if, if if Venezuela, if the Soviet Union, if if, if Cambodia, if, if North Korea, if like all of this communist nightmare of Cuba, if this hasn't been enough to impress upon you the dangers and horrifying nature of central planning, totalitarianism, socialism, communism, you name it, if that isn't enough, if the fact that Sweden now has what added six more no-go zones to the apparently completely mythical no-go zones in Sweden. If uh, migrant crime, if if um, immigrant dependence on welfare, if these basic facts, if by now with the internet, you know, as you pointed out, you know, it's it's the patriarchy that gave you this tiny little computer that has all the world's knowledge in your pocket. If it hasn't been enough to change people's minds, I'll just tell you this, Rebecca. They're committed. And if you've had crazy people in your life who are committed to their particular worldviews, you'll know that it seems they, they they're completely impervious to reality. They are like to reality as Superman's boobs are to bullets like they're just <laughs> choo, choo, bounce wide off. so sorry to interrupt you were just in the middle and I've had quite a, oh, no, a bunch no. of filibusters I, I that, but yeah you you just you've yes. you've you've had a, a nice enough upbringing that you haven't been face to face with um unsalvaged unsalvageable crazy.
1: That's probably true, and and I do still sometimes think like maybe it's just their ignorance to this, which is why I made um I made a video on communism because it was a lot of basic knowledge about communism that I just didn't pick up in public school or at Mizzou. Um, and I was like maybe maybe that liberals that a lot of them just were never exposed to the reality of of communism and socialism. Um, but now that I'm you know discovering more, I think that they. That they they have been and they just don't really care. They keep saying, you know, it was an inappropriate application of a good principle in theory. I hear this from people all the time. I'm like, how many times? A hundred million people have died under communist rule. Um, they just keep saying next time. I'm like, what? What are you going to do? And isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing no, doing but the that, same I don't think it's insanity.
0: Over. I think it's sadism. Again, this is like, it's not crazy, <laughs> it's sadistic. Like, If you knowingly want yeah. to impose a system that's responsible for at least 100 million, I actually think it's much higher, but at least 100 million deaths. And, and that's just the deaths, let alone the ungodly human suffering. Literally, I guess, ungodly right. human suffering that, that went on under these systems. If you want to reimpose that, it's because you like to see people suffer because you want to see, particularly the case-selected people, you want to see them hurt, you want to see them um, killed. You want to see them suffer. I mean, there there is a a massive amount of sadism uh, involved in a lot of this stuff, which is where the cruelty comes from. I mean, sadists are not averse to using violence. And I think that there is a lot of cruelty, a lot of sadism involved in this stuff. If you want to bring that kind of system back um, and you want to pretend that somehow it's going to go different, I think it's because you know it's not going to go different, but you just want to watch that horror movie. It's just what gets you going.
1: What about all these um, Antifa members? I mean, they all look like they're about— Eighteen to twenty five and and I don't know i just I still hold out hope that that adulthood is going to smack them right in the face and they'll come to their senses
0: well, I think I don't know about those guys in particular, <laughs> but I do think that men are genetically programmed or culturally programmed perhaps to sacrifice for women, and given how many single moms are dependent on the state, anybody who tries to rein in the power of the state is going to be egged on psychologically overtly or covertly by the single moms who um need that or believe that they need that government cheese to keep rolling in and uh, this is why trying to sort of restrain the welfare state or pull back on the welfare state provokes a lot of violence and a lot of that violence i think is driven by um by women manipulating men to go out and make trouble so that the checks keep coming in
1: boy well that's a that's a darker answer than i expected but (laughs) i bet you're right
0: I, I could be. That's that's a hypothesis. I mean, uh, I wouldn't even know how you'd go about testing that. Maybe you could uh, try and figure out um, some of these agitators and look at their family histories. And, you know, if they come a lot from single moms, then we would know that the single mom's perception is they're dependent on the state. And people will do a lot to protect their moms. And um, yeah. I think that's... I'm very
1: confident that that's true. I do think that a lot of these people came from single mother households. Right.
0: Which is another reason why, you know, getting getting men out of the picture. Like, what is it... I was just reading about how um, testosterone in American men, it's gone down 1% every year since the 80s. Uh, It's significantly lower now than it was in the past. And nobody knows exactly what the cause is, right? There are theories, you know, fluoride in the water or stump something in the plastic bottles, or, you know, I think it has a lot to do with just father absence. Um, I think it has a lot to do with with father absence, um, but um, that's pretty significant. And... People think that the alpha male is the violent one. That's, to me, that's not alpha behavior. Alpha behavior is, you know, uh, moral courage, is is forthrightness in in conversation with the world, is standing up for what's right. That, to me, is sort of alpha behavior, but this sort of beta cover up your face and throw fox pee at a blonde, I mean, that's not alpha behavior, but I think that comes from uh, a severely emasculated masculinity uh, that doesn't have a positive role model on how to challenge the inevitable aggression that, is good for society when it's channeled in the right way but men are going to be aggressive they're going to be and we want that aggression to be um channeled in positive ways but when boys grow up without fathers on on and who teach them how to ch- how to channel their behavior i mean you've seen it a million times i'm sure if you've been around boys they play fight all the time you know like i go i go see friends and their girls are like I made you a pretend cupcake, you know, and the boys are like, how much you varmints? And it's like, hit me with a rolled up <laughs> paper tube or something, right? And that level of aggression is, is great. And, you know, with, with boys, you know, you, they need constant reinforcement of like, you know, here's how to control your aggression. Use it, fine, let's play fight, but don't be too rough and learn how to manage your strength and learn how to, you know, be in control of your aggressive impulses so that it's fun and not dangerous and all that. These literally... Millions and millions of little course corrections that involve fatherhood or fathering does for boys. It's not available. So where are they getting their um, perception of what it cool. means to be assertive? To be assertive doesn't mean to be destructive. It just means to stand up for what's right. But what do they get? Well, of course, I mean the cliche is: I you know video games and movies and and you know the shiftless bums who come in and have sex with their mom before moving on and cursing at everyone. Um, And so father absence, I think, um, does provoke lower testosterone. I think it provokes higher aggression and less self-control over that aggression. There are things that the leftists have to say that I want to listen to. I really do. Like their criticism of foreign policy, particularly CIA meddling in foreign countries. Fantastic. I want to hear more about that. Their critique of crony capitalism, um, you know, financial companies getting bailed out. I mean, I want to hear that. That is important and powerful stuff that the left has to say. But they're so over the top that it's hard to listen to the the sanity inside the crazy. And um, I don't know what the solution to that is. I think having more positive male role models is important uh, out there. It's a little bit of of what I do, but um, I don't know what the substitute is for that continual course correction of having a father in the home.
1: And it isn't just in the home, um, you know, schools are, have become so feminized. And I, I read a story, I don't remember, I think this was last year, but a little boy had been suspended for um, chewing a cookie into the shape of a gun. Yeah.
0: Just,
1: <laughs> just a suspension, you know. We're teaching little boys that they should abandon um, their masculine energy in favor of feminine energy. And that's really doubling down the effect of single motherhood.
0: And it, it creates or perpetuates at least this lie, Rebecca, that Feminine energy is somehow peaceful, and it's not. Um, you know, I, I've, done, I've done all of this no. stuff with spanking and with domestic violence and so on. Uh, women have as great, if not a greater, capacity for violence than men do. It's just that it's more covered up or socially sanctioned or whatever. Or, you know, men, women get the victim card that men uh, don't get to excuse themselves for their bad behavior. But uh, this uh, lie that, you know, well, men are aggressive and women are just wonderful. It's actually a psychological effect. It's well known in the psychological community. Um, it's WAW. Women are wonderful. Uh, you know, that, boy, if, if we could just have an entire society, you know, like Sweden, run by women, uh, boy, it would, just be, it would just be a paradise for everyone. Uh, Involved And um, this covering up of women's capacity for evil is, I think, one of the most dangerous things that is occurring in society. And feminists uh, have a lot to do with this. And I thought it was all about equality, which includes equality of uh, immorality. But um, this women are wonderful effect uh, is hugely problematic because it automatically portrays, you know... (laughs) What of what a girl's made of, right? Sugar and spice and all right. things nice. And boys are like snips and snails and puppy dog tails. And boys are dirty <laughs> and messy and rough and loud. And, and it's like, yes, and they built civilization that protects you from wolves. Right. Seems kind of important to me. I'll take a little bit of noise if it gets me a wall. <laughs>
1: right, right. And I really did believe that for years until I heard um, Milo Yiannopoulos cite a statistic about how lesbians have the highest rate of domestic abuse of any a uh, couple demographic. And that, that just shocked me. And, and it made me realize, you know, women are not, they're not more peaceful. They're, they're emotionally manipulative. They often get men to do their dirty work. Um, I just have seen no evidence in my life that, that, that women are really more peaceful individuals than men have less propensity for violence.
0: Well, I mean, feminists of course talk a lot about the power disparity, uh, and its effects on, uh, um, aggression, and we know that power corrupts, and power lends people to to behave worse. And there's no greater power disparity in the universe than that between a mother and her child, a mother and her baby, a mother and her toddler in particular. And um, women hit kids a lot, and that is the biggest power disparity, and it is. Uh, a hugely horrible uh, abuse of power, and of course it's cowardly because the kids can't leave, uh, the kids can't hit back. It's certainly not self-defense, and it's not to say that men don't hit children. Of course they do, but we know that we know that men. You know this 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 idea that men can be violent when, particularly when there's a power disparity, for sure. I mean, you know, if the boss asks out the the employee, the female employee, oh, there's a power disparity. You know, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky doesn't matter, but um, so this power disparity uh, causing. Like, you need higher standards of behavior when there's a power disparity, but there's no bigger power disparity than between parent and child or mother and child. It's where you need your very highest standards of behavior. And so often, this is all uh, covered up. And I think until mm-hmm. we can sort of look at that capacity for female evil directly in the face, without, you know, this doesn't mean women are bad. It means women are human beings, which is I thought was the whole point of feminism. <laughs> but uh, until we can look at that, I think it's going to be a great challenge for us to deal with um with all of this kind of stuff what is the motivation for women to support third world migration into the countries well there's i think some pretty dark motivations we really need to be able to look at that uh, but it is a big challenge for people
1: (coughs) i think there are some dark motivations and something that i wanted to explore further is um Is the sexual motivation of women i mean i was in europe uh this winter and um i talked about this in in a video but in germany uh, around this university in freiburg i was seeing all these um native german men that were like very 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 effeminate like i couldn't believe it really tight jeans long hair everything and then i was seeing all of these girls um in in relationships with these like more sexually aggressive migrants and so it got me thinking like is this um, Western European women that are disgusted with their native male population because feminism has turned them into such betas, and now they're trying to outsource this, this masculine energy? Is that what's going on here? Or is this just one part in a, you know, much larger tapestry of all of the issues here?
0: Women are genetically predisposed to being very sensitive as to who's going to win, right? For, for women to sexually side with the losing team, uh, you know, ancient tribal warfare, if women sided with the losing team, well, their their children would be killed, their, their husbands would be killed, and then they would be taken right. usually as concubines by the ruling tribe. So women, whereas if you side with the winning side, you don't go through that trauma and, and you don't, you know, you, you, you're you then a virgin. So there is, I think, a lot of sensitivity among women for trying to pick the winning side. Um I don't know what that means in terms of Europe. I'd have to go and stare at that abyss myself. But um, that would be one of my guesses as to what's happening. And as far as what men and women want, I mean, I think all I want is freedom. Uh, all, you know, what, what do men and women want? I don't know. Because right now, male-female relationships are run by the state the state controls the transfer of resources, the state controls marriage, the state controls divorce, the state controls custody, the state controls uh, domestic violence laws, which have gone kind of crazy, I think, uh, recently. There's so much, and and of course, the massive resource transfers from largely men, male taxpayers, to largely female recipients. uh, Mm -hmm. It's not a free market between the genders anymore. It's become central planning. It's, It's basically become communized. It's socialized. And so as far as what men and women want or how they would interact? I don't know. It's sort of like saying, well, what would a factory look like after communism? I don't know, but it sure as hell is going to look a whole lot different than it looks with communism. Right. And so until we can get the government out of incentivizing and disincentivizing so much of gender relationships, I don't know how we can have a natural and healthy um, uh, respect and, and positive uh, working relationship between the genders.
1: You're right. And... <clears throat> I just wonder if the average person knows how much blame women really have in this. I don't think so. I mean, I think that that would probably uh, dispel feminist myths in and of itself. I think people would look at this differently if they knew. Yeah.
0: I mean, people people complain about the national debt. But if you try clawing back spending, um, I think often the most vociferous opponents of that are women. Women are very dependent on state handouts and women live longer. They vote more. Uh, than than men uh, and um and and partly that's by choice, and partly that's just because they live longer and because they often will have more time. and so where society is going in a democracy where female voters outnumber male voters, the idea that women have no agency in this are just victims, I mean that is. <laughs> Again, the victim card, I just, you know, again, I can't, I can't understand that. You know, when I was a kid, if I cried, people would basically just tell me to snap out of it, you know, like, boy up or whatever the equivalent was at the time. But, you know, w- women cry and everyone's like, oh, how can we make it better? How can we make the, how can we make the <laughs> bad feelings go away with lots of money and debt? I don't, I don't know what that's like. But again, I, th- I do believe that power corrupts and um, this kind of deference is very anti-feminist. Uh, And this kind of deference is, um, I think, continues to infantilize women and has women have this amazing capacity to be upset and have the world change to make it go away. And I think that's way too much power for anyone to have.
1: Oh, yeah, (laughs) I agree.
0: All right. Well, I really want to thank you for a very good wide ranging as I knew it would be. uh, And I really want to remind people um, that uh, Rebecca Blonde in the Belly of the Beast uh, covers a huge number of topics and very passionately, very rationally, very powerfully. Please, please, please check out youtube.com forward slash blonde with an E in the Belly of the Beast. We'll put links to it below twitter.com forward slash blondes underbar tweets uh it was a great pleasure i you know i appreciate all the bullets you're taking for the cause and the courage that it takes if you, you know for those out there watching this if you're not doing this it's hard to really gauge you know it can be tough and <laughs> and she's done a you've done a fantastic job in getting great ideas out and you know subscribers are going up like gangbusters view counts are going up like gangbusters and one day i hope to work for you so um <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> for your time i'm sure we'll talk again have yourself a wonderful day
1: thank you stephen